Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two, of the Voyages of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Voyages of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter Twenty Nine, Part Two. Twentieth. A long day's ride to Bathurst, before joining the high road we followed a mere path through the forest, and the country, with the exception of a few squatters' huts, was very solitary. We experienced this day the Sirocco-like wind of Australia, which comes from the parched deserts of the interior. Clouds of dust were travelling in every direction and the wind felt as if it had passed over a fire. I afterwards heard that the thermometer out of doors had stood at a hundred and nineteen degrees, and in a closed room at ninety-six degrees. In the afternoon we came in view of the downs of Bathurst. These undulating but nearly smooth plains are very remarkable in this country, from being absolutely destitute of trees. They support only a thin brown pasture. We rode some miles over this country, and then reached the township of Bathurst, seated in the middle of what may be called either a very broad valley or narrow plain. I was told at Sydney not to form too bad an opinion of Australia by judging of the country from the roadside, nor too good a one from Bathurst. In this latter respect, I did not feel myself in the least danger of being prejudiced. The season, it must be owned, had been one of the great drought, and the country did not wear a favourable aspect, although I understand it was incomparable worse two or three months before. The secret of the rapidly growing prosperity of Bathurst is that the brown pasture which appears to the stranger's eye so wretched, is excellent for sheep grazing. The town stands at the height of 2,200 feet above the sea, on the banks of the Macquarie. This is one of the rivers flowing into the vast and scarcely known interior. The line of watershed, which divides the inland streams from those on the coast, has a height of about 3,000 feet, and runs in a north and south direction at the distance of from eighty to a hundred miles from the seaside. The Macquarie figures in the map as a respectable river, and it is the largest of those draining this part of the watershed. Yet to my surprise I found it a mere chain of ponds, separated from each other by spaces almost dry. Generally a small stream is running, and sometimes there are high and impetuous floods. Scanty as the supply of the water is throughout this district, it becomes still scantier further inland. 22nd. I commenced my return, and followed a new road called Lockyer's Line, along which the country is rather more hilly and picturesque. This was a long day's ride, and the house where I wished to sleep was some way off the road, and not easily found. 
I met on this occasion, and indeed on all others, a very general and ready civility among the lower orders, which, when one considers what they are, and what they have been, would scarcely have been expected. The farm where I passed the night was owned by two young men who had only lately come out, and were beginning a settler's life. The total want of almost every comfort was not attractive, but future and certain prosperity was before their eyes, and that not far distant. The next day we passed through large tracts of country in flames, volumes of smoke sweeping across the road. Before noon we joined our former road, and ascended Mount Victoria. I slept at the weatherboard, and before dark took another walk to the amphitheatre. On the road to Sydney I spent a very pleasant evening with Captain King at Dunheved, and thus ended my little excursion in the colony of New South Wales. Before arriving here the three things which interested me most were the state of society amongst the higher classes, the condition of the convicts, and the degree of attraction sufficient to induce persons to emigrate. Of course, after so very short a visit, one's opinion is worth scarcely anything, but it is as difficult not to form some opinion, as it is to form a correct judgment. On the whole, from what I heard, more than from what I saw, I was disappointed in the state of society. The whole community is rancorously divided into parties on almost every subject. Among those who, from their station in life, ought to be the best, many live in such open prolificacy, and respectable people cannot associate with them. There is much jealousy between the children of the rich emancipist and the free settlers, the former being pleased to consider honest men at interlopers. The whole population, poor and rich, are bent on acquiring wealth. Amongst the higher orders, wool and sheep grazing form the constant subject of conversation. There are many serious drawbacks to the comforts of a family the chief of which, perhaps, is being surrounded by convict servants. How thoroughly odious to every feeling, to be waited on by a man who the day before, perhaps, was flogged from your representation for some trifling misdemeanour. The female servants are, of course, much worse, hence children learn the vilest expressions, and it is fortunate if not equally vile ideas. On the other hand, the capital of a person, without any trouble on his part, produces him treble interest to what it will in England, and with care he is sure to grow rich. The luxuries of life are in abundance, and very little dearer than in England, and most articles of food are cheaper. The climate is splendid, and perfectly healthy, but to my mind its charms are lost by the uninviting aspect of the country. Settlers possesses a great advantage in finding their sons of service when very young. 
At the age of from 16 to 20, they frequently take charge of distant farming stations. This, however, must happen at the expense of their boys associating entirely with convict servants. I am not aware that the tone of society has assumed any peculiar character, but with such habits, and without intellectual pursuits, it can hardly fail to deteriorate. My opinion is such that nothing but rather sharp necessity should compel me to emigrate. The rapid prosperity and future prospects of this colony are to me, not understanding these subjects, very puzzling. The two main exports are wool and whale oil, and to both of these productions there is a limit. The country is totally unfit for canals, therefore there is not a very distant point, beyond which the land carriage of wool will not repay the expense of shearing and tending sheep. Pasture everywhere is so thin that settlers have already pushed far into the interior. Moreover, the country further inland becomes extremely poor. Agriculture, on account of the droughts, can never succeed on an extended scale. Therefore, so far as I can see, Australia must ultimately depend upon being the centre of commerce for the southern hemisphere, and perhaps on her future manufactories. Possessing coal, she always has the moving power at hand. From the habitable country extending along the coast, and from her English extraction, she is sure to be a maritime nation. I formerly imagined that Australia would rise to be as grand and powerful a country as North America, but now it appears to me that such future grandeur is rather problematical. With respect to the state of the convicts, I had still fewer opportunities of judging than on other points. The first question is, whether their condition is at all one of punishment. No one will maintain that it is a very severe one. This, however, I suppose, is of little consequence as long as it continues to be an object of dread to criminals at home. The corporal wants of the convicts are tolerable, well supplied. Their prospect of future liberty and comfort is not distant and, after good conduct, certain. A ticket of leave, which, as long as a man keeps clear of suspicion as well as of crime, makes him free within a certain district, is given up good conduct, after years proportional to the length of the sentence. Yet with all this, and overlooking the previous imprisonment and wretched passage out, I believe the years of assignment are passed away with discontent and unhappiness. As an intelligent man remarked to me, the convicts know no pleasure beyond sensuality, and in this they are not gratified. The enormous bribe which government possesses in offering free pardons, together with the deep horror of the secluded penal settlements, destroys confidence between the convicts and so prevents crime. As to a sense of shame, such a feeling does not appear to be known, and of this I witness some very singular proofs. Though it is a curious fact, 
I was universally told that the character of the convict population is one of a rant cowardness. Not unfrequently some become desperate, and quite indifferent as to life, yet a plan requiring cool or continued courage is seldom put into execution. The worst feature in the whole case is that although there exists what may be called a legal reform, and comparatively little is committed which the law can touch, yet that any moral reform should take place appears to be quite out of the question. I was assured by well-informed people that a man who should try to improve could not while living with other assigned servants. His life would be one of intolerable misery and persecution. Nor must the contamination of the convict ships and prisons, both here and in England, be forgotten. On the whole, as a place of punishment, the object is scarcely gained. As a real system of reform, it has failed, as perhaps would every other plan, but as a means of making men outwardly honest, of converting vagabonds, most useless in one hemisphere, into active citizens of another, and thus giving birth to a new and splendid country, a grand centre of civilization. It has succeeded to a degree perhaps unparalleled in history. Thirtieth, the Beagle sailed for Hobart Town in Van Diemen's Land. On the 5th of February, after a six days' passage, of which the first part was fine, and the latter very cold and squally, we entered the mouth of Storm Bay. The weather justified this awful name. The bay should rather be called an estuary, for it receives at its head the waters of the Derwent. Near the mouth there are some extensive basaltic platforms, but higher up the land becomes mountainous, and is covered by a light wood. The lower parts of the hills which skirt the bay are cleared, and the bright yellow fields of corn and dark green ones of potatoes appear very luxuriant. Late in the evening we anchored in the snug cove, on the shores of which stands the capital of Tasmania. The first aspect of the place was very inferior to that of Sydney. The latter might be called a city. This is only a town. It stands at the base of Mount Wellington, a mountain 3,100 feet high, but of little picturesque beauty. From this source, however, it receives a good supply of water. Round the cove there are some fine warehouses, and on one side a small fort, coming from the Spanish settlements, where much magnificent care has generally been paid to the fortifications. The means of defence in these colonies appeared very contemptible. Comparing the town with Sydney, I was chiefly struck with the comparative fewness of the large houses, either built or building. Hobart Town, from the census of 1835, contained 13,826 inhabitants, and the whole of Tasmania 36,505. All the Aborigines have been removed to an island in Bass's Straits so that Van Diemen's land enjoys the great advantage of being free from a native population. 
this most cruel step seems to have been quite unavoidable, as the only means of stopping a fearful succession of robberies, burnings, and murders committed by the blacks, and which sooner or later would have ended in their utter destruction. I fear there is no doubt that this train of evil and its consequences originated in the infamous conduct of some of our countrymen. Thirty years is a short period in which to have banished the last Aboriginal from his native island, and that island nearly as large as Ireland. The correspondence on this subject which took place between the government at home and that of Van Diemen's Land is very interesting. Although numbers of natives were shot and taken prisoners in the skirmishing, which was going on at intervals for several years, nothing seems fully to have impressed them with the idea of our overwhelming power, until the whole island in 1830 was put under martial law, and by proclamation the whole population commanded to assist in one great attempt to secure the entire race. The plan adopted was nearly similar to that of great hunting matches in India. A line was formed reaching across the island, with the intention of driving the natives into a cul-de-sac on Tasman's peninsula. The attempt failed, the natives having tied up their dogs stole during one night through the lines. This is far from surprising, when their practice, senses, and usual manner of crawling after wild animals is considered. I have been assured that they can conceal themselves on almost bare ground, in a manner which until witnessed is scarcely credible, their dusky bodies being easily mistaken for the blackened stumps which are scattered all over the country. I was told of a trial between a party of Englishmen and a native, who was to stand in full view on the side of a bare hill. If the Englishmen closed their eyes for less than a minute, he would squat down, and then they were never able to distinguish him from the surrounding stumps. But to return to the hunting match, the natives understanding this kind of warfare, were terribly alarmed, for they at once perceived the power and the numbers of the whites. Shortly afterwards a party of thirteen belonging to two tribes came in, and, conscious of their unprotected condition, delivered themselves up in despair. Subsequently, by the intrepid exertions of Mr. Robinson, an active and benevolent man, who fearlessly visited by himself the most hostile of the natives. The whole were induced to act in a similar manner. They were then removed to an island where food and clothes were provided them. Count Strelecki states that at the epoch of their deportation in 1835, the number of natives amounted to 210. In 1842, that is, after the interval of seven years, they mustered only fifty-four individuals, and while each family of the interior of New South Wales, uncontaminated by contact with the whites, swarms with children, those of Flinders Island had during eight years an accession of only fourteen in number. Footnote 
Physical Description of New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land, page 354. End of footnote. The Beagle stayed here ten days, and in this time I made several pleasant little excursions, chiefly with the object of examining the geological structure of the immediate neighbourhood. The main points of interest consist first in some highly fossiliferous strata, belonging to the Devonian or Carboniferous period, secondly in proofs of a late small rise of the land, and lastly in a solitary and superficial patch of yellowish limestone or travertine, which contains numerous impressions of leaves of trees, together with land shells not now existing. It is not improbable that this one small quarry includes the only remaining record of the vegetation of Van Diemen's land during one former epoch. The climate here is damper than in New South Wales, and hence the land is more fertile. Agriculture flourishes, the cultivated fields look well, and the gardens abound with thriving vegetables and fruit trees. Some of the farmhouses, situated in retired spots, had a very attractive appearance. The general aspect of the vegetation is similar to that of Australia. Perhaps it is a little more green and cheerful, and the pasture between the trees rather more abundant. One day I took a long walk on the side of the bay opposite to the town. I crossed in a steamboat two of which are constantly plying backwards and forwards. The machinery of one of these vessels was entirely manufactured in this colony, which, from its very foundation, then numbered only three and thirty years. Another day I ascended Mount Wellington. I took with me a guide, for I failed in a first attempt, from the thickness of the wood. Our guide, however, was a stupid fellow, and conducted us to the southern and damp side of the mountain, where the vegetation was very luxuriant, and where the labour of the ascent from the number of rotten trunks was almost as great as on a mountain in Tierra del Fugo or in Chilo. It was five and a half hours of hard climbing before we reached the summit. In many parts the eucalypti grew to a great size, and composed a noble forest. In some of the dampest ravines, tree ferns flourished in an extraordinary manner. I saw one which must have been at least twenty feet high to the base of the fronds, and was in girth exactly six feet. The fronds, forming the most elegant parasols, produced a gloomy shade, like that of the first hour of the night. The summit of the mountain is broad and flat, and is composed of huge angular masses of naked greenstone. Its elevation is 3,100 feet above the level of the sea. The day was splendidly clear, and we enjoyed a most extensive view. To the north the country appeared a mass of wooded mountains, on about the same height with that on which we were standing and with an equally tame outline. To the south, the broken land and water, forming many intricate bays, 
was mapped with clearness before us. After staying some hours on the summit, we found a better way to descend, but did not reach the Beagle till eight o'clock, after a severe day's work. February 7th. The Beagle sailed from Tasmania, and on the 6th of the ensuing month reached King George's Sound, situated close to the S.W. corner of Australia. We stayed there eight days, and we did not during our voyage pass a more dull and uninteresting time. The country viewed from an eminence appears a woody plain, with here and there rounded and partly bare hills of granite protruding. One day I went out with a party, in hopes of seeing a kangaroo hunt, and walked over a good many miles of country. Everywhere we found the soil sandy and very poor. It supported either a coarse vegetation of thin, low brushwood and wiry grass, or a forest of stunted trees. The scenery resembled that of the high sandstone platform of the Blue Mountains, the Casuarina, a tree somewhat resembling a Scotch fir, is, however, here in greater number, and the eucalyptus in rather less. In the open parts there were many grass trees, a plant which, in appearance, has some affinity with the palm, but, instead of being surmounted by a crown of noble fronds, it can boast merely of a tuft of very coarse grass-like leaves. The general bright green colour of the brushwood and other plants, viewed from a distance, seemed to promise fertility. A single walk, however, was enough to dispel such an illusion, and he who thinks with me will never wish to walk again in so uninviting a country. One day I accompanied Captain Fitzroy to Baldhead, the place mentioned by so many navigators where some imagined that they saw corals, and others that they saw petrified trees, standing in the position in which they had grown. According to our view, the beds had been formed by the wind having heaped up fine sand, composed of minute rounded particles of shells and corals, during which process branches and roots of trees, together with many land shells, became enclosed. The whole then became consolidated by the percolation of calcareous matter, and the cylindrical cavities left by the decaying of the wood were thus also filled up a hard persuado stalactical stone. The weather is now wearing away the softer parts, and in consequence the hard casts of the roots and branches of the trees project above the surface, and in a singularly deceptive manner resemble the stumps of a dead thicket. A large tribe of natives, called the White Cockatoo Men, happened to pay the settlement a visit while we were there. These men, as well as those of the tribe belonging to King George's Sound, being tempted by the offer of some tubs of rice and sugar, were persuaded to hold a corroboree, or great dancing party. As soon as it grew dark, small fires were lighted, and the men commenced their toilet, which consisted in painting themselves white in spots and lines. As soon as all was ready, large fires were kept blazing, 
round which the women and children were collected as spectators. The cockatoo and King George's men formed two distinct parties, and generally danced in answer to each other. The dancing consisted in their running either sideways or in Indian file into an open space, and stamping the ground with great force as they marched together. Their heavy footsteps were accompanied by a kind of grunt, by beating their clubs and spears together, and by various other gesticulations, such as extending their arms and wriggling their bodies. It was a most rude, barbarous scene, and, to our ideas, without sort of meaning, but we observed that the black women and children watched it with the greatest pleasure. Perhaps these dances originally represented actions, such as wars and victories. There was one called the Emu Dance, in which each man extended his arm in a bent manner, like the neck of that bird. In another dance, one man imitated the movements of a kangaroo grazing in the woods, whilst a second crawled up and pretended to spear him. When both tribes mingled in the dance, the ground trembled with the heaviness of their steps, and the air resounded with their wild cries. Every one appeared in high spirits, and the group of nearly naked figures viewed by the light of the blazing fires, all moving in hideous harmony, formed a perfect display of a festival amongst the lowest barbarians. In Tierra del Fugo we have beheld many curious scenes in savage life, but never, I think, one where the natives were in such high spirits, and so perfectly at their ease. After the dancing was over, the whole party formed a great circle on the ground, and the boiled rice and sugar was distributed, to the delight of all. After several tedious delays from clouded weather, on the 14th of March, we gladly stood out of King George's Sound on our course to Keeling Island. Farewell, Australia. You are a rising child and doubtless some day will reign a great princess in the south, but you are too great and ambitious for affection, yet not great enough for respect. I leave your shores without sorrow or regret. End of chapter 29, part 2